0: Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Vampire Knight Season 2, Episodes 1, 2, and 3. And apparently, this season was released under the title Vampire Knight Guilty. Who is guilty? I do not know. But Season 2 picks up more or less where Season 1 left off. I had been wondering if there might be some kind of a significant time skip, but there's not. We find Yuki only a week ahead of when we last saw her. Zero has been gone for a little while, allowing the day-class girls to lose their minds even more than they had already. Ido has a little moment of flirting with Yuki, once again making her peers utterly hate her. And then Zero shows up again. Yuki's behavior here is bizarre, and so I have a prime example right from the jump to remind me why I don't like her as a character. She isn't happy to see him. She's just this sad nothing. And while this behavior in real life would demand extra attention to make sure that the person exhibiting this behavior is alright, in fiction I can't pretend that I have much sympathy for her right now. It feels very inauthentic and melodramatic, really, the same way that so many other depression sues from the mid-2000s felt. Really, Yuki is like the ultimate culmination of all of those characters. Her life is just so hard, and she's so sad despite the fact that, like, all the things she's upset about aren't things that are even happening to her. Her sorrow comes across as narcissism in that way, I suppose. She sees that Zero is back, which is incredible news and practically a miracle, and instead of expressing any joy or giving him a hug or really reacting positively in any way, she just folds in on herself and starts angsting. And again, if this were a real little girl, it's understandable. No judgment from me. Make sure she gets the help she needs. But this isn't a real little girl. This is a fictional character, the protagonist of a story. Someone chose to write her this way, and I can't help thinking that it feels manipulative. Look how sad she is. Don't you feel so bad for her poor Yuki? And like, no, I find her irksome. Get her off the screen, please. And then there's Kaname. Like, I can't put my finger on exactly what's different right now, but I feel like everyone is being drawn much prettier this season, and this shot of Kaname is the crowning moment of that. I get why 14-year-olds were into him back in the mid-2000s. It's just that he's got an awful manipulative, arrogant, and dangerous personality to go along with the pretty face, and that's what doesn't work for me. This moment that passes between Zero and Kaname, though? Well, over the course of these three episodes, I settled on my shipping preferences, and this is definitely one of the moments that helped shape my choice. Everything that's happening between Zero and Kaname is leagues more interesting than anything that's ever happened involving Yuki. But now we're on to the opening credits. This is Season 2, which means that the credits are all new, and that the show itself gets a fun little subtitle. Last season was just Vampire Night, This season is Vampire Knight Guilty. So, let's look at this melodramatic as all hell opening sequence. We've got roses sadly shriveling up. We've got a purple butterfly fluttering about. We've got a foggy, dead winter forest wherein Yuki spins in sad circles like a fucking weirdo. We've got Konami standing dramatically at the top of some tower, playing, being Dracula, and hinting. Or does it even still count as hinting at this point? that he is pulling everyone's strings. A book opens then, inexplicably written in English, and we cycle through headshots of our vampire cast, most of whom, I have to repeat, do not have enough characterization to really warrant their inclusion in the story. Then Zero is there holding a gun, dramatically standing in front of an enormous moon, and behind him is his foil-slash-identical twin, Ichiru, who's gotten a very lame costume change that incorporates reminders of Shizuka. Then there's Cross, also standing dramatically, and the ribbon falls from his ponytail to let his hair fly loose, hinting that he indeed has some character development coming up. And then Zero and Kaname are in that foggy forest with Yuki, and Yuki reaches out to Kaname, but does not actually reach him. And then she's crying alone among some dunes. And then, in our final shot, there's what looks like Yuki's sad girl dress stuck on the Artemis rod, fluttering in the wind like a flag, while Yuki is back in her school uniform with extremely long, flowing hair. I assume this is a hint at vampire Yuki, which I assume is where we're going with this story, ultimately. That's a prediction I am definitely willing to make at this point. We've established that Konami's pure blood is enough to save Zero at least temporarily from Descent. I'm sure at this point that the spoiler about Yuki being Konami's sister is true, and so I'm thinking that it's going to be the thing to save Zero once and for all. Yuki is somehow going to be like reawakened or whatever as a pure blood vampire, and Zero will switch from drinking Konami's blood to drinking hers. And because of that, I am going to be stunned if this love triangle ends with Konami and Yuki together. I'm thinking that they're going to have a falling out where she finds out he's the villain, and the end game is going to be Zero and Yuki. But I suppose we'll see. As we move on, we see many more night class students than we've ever seen before. Whether these people were supposed to have been here all along, or whether they're supposed to be new, I'm not entirely sure. Though I don't appreciate the implication that these people were just, like, off screen the whole time. It's one of the things that drives me crazy about the Harry Potter series. She Who Shall Not Be Named talked a bunch about how there were tons of Hogwarts students she just never mentioned or alluded to or anything like that. And, um, no, that's not how writing works. If it wasn't in the goddamn book, it wasn't in the goddamn book. You can't do math, and you accidentally fucked up readers' perception of how many students were at the school. Just own it. But of course, that's far from the worst thing that woman is fucking up these days, so let's move on, shall we? Anyway, Kaname has a favor to ask of the night class, and they all promise to adhere to it. But we don't actually get to hear what it is that he's asking of them? I don't know to what degree I should or should not be concerned about this. In our next scene, we see Yigari and Cross having another conversation. They don't know how Zero recovered, and I feel like they should be vastly more concerned in that case. If he spontaneously got better, that is a literal miracle. The kind of thing that would need to be researched to see if it could be replicated to help prevent other humans-turned-vampires from going feral. But they're very casual about it instead, and moreover, given the awkward way that romance in this show is just boy insults and controls girl and girl catches feelings, I am confused by how Yugari and Cross are apparently kind of a rare pair in this fandom. I did a very quick glance at the AO3 tags and, like, almost nobody ships these two except sometimes as a supporting pairing in Het is You fanfic, and, like, how is that possible? How? Just how? These two are what Zero and Yuki would be if Yuki actually had a fucking personality beyond being sad. If I'm being honest, I think that hints at the demographics of the show. This is a teen girl show, and so they are too distracted by the pretty young men to pick up on the dynamic between the two dad-like characters. So... Now we're back with Zero, who is angsting about having drank Konami's blood, and who has a sudden vision of… something. Someone? I'm not really sure what I'm looking at here, but it's obviously important, and so I'm looking forward to finding out what it's all about. Next, though, we find Yuki bemoaning her own uselessness, and of course, she comes up with the worst way to be useful. She spots Zero and offers him her neck, and again, I cannot stand this girl. She realizes that her role in the story so far is pathetic, and she wants to be more than just someone that Konami and Zero have to protect, but all she can think to be beyond object of protection is blood fountain. She is a submissive little doormat to the very core. Her idea of self-improvement is to do things for the men in her life, including, when it both risks her own life and they don't want it from her in the first place. Because here we see Yuki joyful for the first time this season. She's finally expressing, or at least faking, happiness as she offers herself to Zero as fucking food, and she's not even emotionally aware enough to pick up on the fact that she's not helping him. She's hurting him right now. She's crossing lines and pushing his boundaries, and she's doing it all with a see-ma-I'm-helping little-kid attitude, and her EQ must be fucking abysmal. She is as pathetic as she thinks she is, and I think she's genuinely one of the most hard-to-watch protagonists I have seen in a very long time. I am sincerely hoping that she is a better character in the manga. She's gotta be a better character there, right? So... Zero and Yuki have this tearful conversation in which Yuki admits that she hates herself, and Zero's own emotional lack of intelligence doesn't allow him to do much more than ask her what the fuck their relationship even is while wiping away her tears. And before things can get even worse from there, Cross runs by in a panic, because Maria has just woken up from her coma. Now, when they go to check on her, Maria is ecstatic. She thinks that Zero is Ichiru, and she realizes too late that no, he's actually Zero. This makes her collapse, because this show is apparently incapable of writing anything resembling a proper non-villainous female character, and Maria accepts that Shizuka must really be dead. She explains how she agreed to let Shizuka possess her in exchange for improving Maria's health, and Maria offers up a sob story about how Shizuka was put in a gilded cage pretty much as soon as she was born, never to experience love until she turned the man that Zero's parents killed. The man who, I will remind everyone, Shizuka admitted resented her until he died. But still, it really puts Yuki's bullshit into perspective, doesn't it? Shizuka was the closest thing this show had to a female character who actually had some, you know, character, and she went through much worse than Yuki did. And yet Yuki is the one who's written like a fucking wet rag. Maria, though, is trying desperately to dethrone Yuki as the queen of pathetic female characters, She's all weak and helpless and clinging to Zero like she wishes she could go full male anglerfish on him, and she assures him that Shizuka wouldn't begrudge him for having killed her, which is fully fucking unhinged. Like, get a grip, child. But, Maria does have one little tidbit of useful information. She gets Zero alone and tells him that there was a secret mastermind behind the death of his parents. Someone, presumably Shizuka's mysterious fiancé, got themselves all pissed about Shizuka being in love with a formerly human vampire, and so they had him killed via the Hunter Society. It's implied that this person was the person Zero is getting flashes of, and based off the glimpses we've gotten so far, I'm thinking that he's not Konami, but that he's somehow connected to Konami. I sincerely hope that it's not that Konami has a secret twin of his own. I don't think I could handle that. But anyway... Yuki is heading out when she senses a vampire on the other side of the fence. It turns out that the Vampire Senate have sent a bunch of enforcers or assassins or something to execute Zero for killing Shizuka, which of course he actually didn't do. No, that was Kaname, and so guess who swoops in to save Zero from the Senate? Yep, there is our pure blood asshole. Among all the gathered, only Ido realizes what the fuck is really happening here. Kaname, all detached and regal and unambiguously villainous, torches the Senate's vampires just a little bit to force them to fuck off and leave Zero alone. But he doesn't try to say that Zero didn't do it, or that Zero should, you know, be actually proven guilty before being executed. He just says that he doesn't want them to kill Zero, and then tells them to go. They do, disappearing in this, like, red mist, and how the fuck are we this far into this show, and only now getting to the reveal that vampires can fucking teleport. But Zero, of course, is far from grateful to Konami. He storms away, leaving Yuki to thank Konami on his behalf, but Yuki escalates things. For the first time that I can recall, she actually stands up to Kaname. When he tries to brush her cheek, she dodges away from his touch and insists that Zero is innocent. It is, for some reason, very important to her that he admit out loud that he knows Zero didn't kill Shizuka, and she tells him that she won't talk to him anymore until he admits it. He tries to placate her, very dismissively and patronizingly, and for once, she actually wants to stand her ground. Since she's a pushover who will fold in a second if left to her own devices, though, she runs away, leaving Ichijo laughing about how childish the whole conversation was. Which makes Kaname blast a fucking hole right through the tree trunk less than a half inch away from Ichijo's head. Because anger issues and violence are super sexy and not at all a blood-red fucking flag. But, back in the night dorm, the other core vampires are discussing what the hell is up with Kaname. Shiki, for his part, doesn't really give much of a shit. He only knows that he is supposed to obey Kaname, and so that's what he's gonna do. And the others agree with this, though Aido does so very unconvincingly, and it's becoming more and more obvious to the bunch of them, but especially to Kane, that something is up. Back in Yuki's dorm, she can't sleep, and she's keeping Yori awake too. Yuki bemoans her own childishness, and Yori tells her that she doesn't think there's anything wrong with Yuki being childish, which is correct, as Yuki is a 15-year-old little girl. But the story doesn't want to treat her that way, and so this is incredibly gross and hypocritical. One of two things can be true here, only one. Either Yuki is capable of being in an adult romance with either Konami or Zero or both of them, or Yuki is a little girl whose childishness is reasonable. Those two things cannot exist simultaneously. Either Yuki is an adult and she needs to act like it, or she is a child and it's okay that she acts like a child. And if she is a child who acts childishly, which again is the right choice for the narrative to make as she is fucking 15, then she is too young for zero let alone for Kaname, who once again, I have to reiterate, is written as an adult man, not a teenage boy, and is almost definitely her brother. But outside, we find Kaname and Zero having another tense conversation. Zero knows that he didn't kill Shizuka, but he doesn't seem to suspect that Kaname did. Instead, he passes along Maria's message about there being some mysterious bigger bad behind Shizuka, Not that Kaname is impressed. I would be very surprised if he doesn't know all about whoever the big bat is. Assuming that it's not him in the first place. And to emphasize just how much he does not give a fuck about Zero trying to share this information with him, he taunts Zero. He tells him that his blood won't actually save him in the long term, that he pities him, and then implies that all he's really good for is protecting Yuki and Kaname's stead, which is clearly what he genuinely thinks of the worth of Zero's existence. And then, he just walks away, ignoring Zero's attempts to continue the conversation. But not before getting in one last zinger. Zero is not good for anything beyond protecting Yuki, but since Zero is only surviving thanks to ingesting Kaname's blood, it's essentially like Kaname is the one protecting Yuki through Zero, isn't it? And forgive me a moment while I vomit everywhere, you narcissistic dickhole. Remember when I started this and I thought that Zero was an asshole? Somehow Konami is actually managing to make Zero look like a nice guy just via comparison. But nice or not, he's falling apart. And given that he's actually been through some stuff, his struggling is so much more sympathetic than Yuki's is. He's struggling with the trauma of losing his whole family and being turned into a creature that he hates, with being indebted to a man that he hates, with being reunited with his long-lost brother under just about the worst possible circumstances, with Yuki's inability to be sensitive and respectful of his needs and his boundaries and his emotions, with the trauma of being mind-controlled and attacked by Shizuka, and now with the threat of being executed for killing the woman he missed his chance to kill in the first place. The guy is going through a lot, and I find myself increasingly sympathetic toward him, which, like I said, is largely fueled by Konami's increasingly open arrogance and shiftiness. And given everything that he's going through, it's no surprise that Zero ends up having nightmares. He's being taunted by visions of Shizuka and of half-dead Yuki, and the moment when he wakes from his dream to pull her into a desperate hug is really heartbreaking. I would care a lot more, of course, if their relationship was properly brother-sister instead of this mess, because Zero takes this moment to very nearly kiss her, and... Baby, no. No. Other girls exist. Girls who haven't spent the past four years as your foster sister. Girls with personalities and backbones and, like, hobbies and shit. Also, don't start up a relationship while you're in that much emotional turmoil. Don't really make any decisions while you're in that kind of a headspace. Basically, I guess what I'm saying is that between Yuki's I hate myself and Zero's my life is a waking nightmare, I want both of these kids in, like, at least once a week therapy for the foreseeable future. But anyway. Sometime later, Yuki is, of course, dwelling on her near kiss until a little boy tugs at her coat and asks for help finding his mother. Because she is incapable of saying no, she agrees. As for Zero, he's with Cross, getting orders from the Hunter Society. There's some kind of a vampire party or something going on tonight, and so he's needed there to play watchdog. It seems like a bad idea. Given that the Vampire Senate wants him fucking dead, but okay. On their way to the party, Ichio is busy licking Kaname's boots because Vampire Society is incomprehensible to me. And Kaname leverages this bizarre devotion. He tasks Ichio with taking a request back to the Senate. From now on, he wants the Senate to mind their own business about what happens at Cross Academy. I suppose we're supposed to take it as that being his territory. And so he wants total control. Why they're letting him get away with this is anyone's guess. What is the point of a vampire senate if the, quote, pure-blood princes and princesses, or whatever the fuck they are, can just order them around like peons? Anyway, back to Yuki. The little boy who reveals himself as a brunette with one brown eye and one blue eye leads her to the entryway of a building and then kisses her on the cheek as a thank you, and Yuki collapses, unconscious. So, let's talk about this little boy for a second. It is only as I write this that I think I'm coming to a good theory on who the hell he is. When first I saw him, he reminded me of Konami and Yuki, whose family resemblance is quite strong by anime standards. My initial thought, then, was that perhaps there's some degree of magical fuckery going on here, perhaps even time travel or something, and that this kid is Yuki's, with perhaps the blue eye hinting that his father is Zero, whose eyes are a kind of lilac color. But I think if the show wanted me to believe that this kid was Yuki and Zero's child from the future in a very chibi-moon kind of way, then he'd have a brown eye and a purple eye instead of a brown eye and a blue one. Which brings me to my alternate theory. I had wondered if his story about trying to find his mother was completely invented, but based on what we see later, he does indeed appear alongside an adult woman who may or may not actually be his mom. But what if this kid is more sinister than at first he appears? There is a mysterious pureblood lurking in the periphery of this story, just waiting to be revealed as the big bad. What if this is his kid? Worse, could it be possible that, just like Shizuka was controlling Maria, what if this kid is the big bad, via either disguise or possession? Is that possible? Too wild? Too mild? I don't know. It's just what struck me as I watched the scene again to write the podcast script. Anyway, Ido and Kane arrive at the Vampire Gala to find that Yuki has passed out on the fucking floor. And they are hilariously casual about it. But then there's Kaname, and he takes a funny scene in a very awful direction. Rather than express any kind of concern for her, he insults her once again, calling her a troublesome girl and takes her to a couch somewhere in the building. When she wakes, she's disoriented and can barely stand, and he takes the opportunity to taunt her about how she'd said she wasn't talking to him anymore. This is the same kind of behavior as that yet-you-participate-in-society-gotcha-guy-bullshit. Like, this is not your moment to crow about stupid shit you utter jackass. She just woke up in a strange room with no memory of how the fuck she got there, and, in case you've forgotten, she's already got trauma related to losing her memories. Not to mention the time you removed her memories last season. I thought you weren't talking to me, is just a petty fucking taunt. She's scared and confused, and you think now is the time to needle her over you getting your goddamn way? Again, this is narcissistic, abusive, dickhole behavior. And it gets worse. As usual, he's touching her face without asking, scolding her for daring to upset him, touching her chest without asking, taunting her over her racing heartbeat, and telling her not to leave this windowless room where she doesn't know where she is and which, amusingly, looks almost exactly like the green room from the fourth season of Supernatural. Maybe that shouldn't amuse me as much as it does, but it does. Anyway, at the vampire party proper, Ido is just staring at Zero, brooding over the fact that of all the people who could have been sent by the Hunter Society to keep the peace, of course it just had to be Zero. Yugari is there too, of course, but Ido doesn't have anything to say about him, and keep that in mind for later, when I properly get into what I've decided regarding my shipping preferences. Back to Yuki. She gets a flash of a vision rather similar to what Zero has been experiencing. Unlike Zero, though, who is seeing a figure of ambiguous gender, Yuki is definitely seeing a woman. I wonder perhaps if it could be her mother, but I think it's more likely that this mysterious vision woman is instead the little boy's mysterious mom because wouldn't you know it, the little boy is back. Somehow he knows exactly where to find Yuki, and he apologizes for what he did to her earlier, which Ichijo chalked up to vampire children having special vitality-draining powers that adult and teen vampires lack. Now, I think that the sudden reveal of child vampires being psychic vampires instead of or in addition to blood drinkers is just as ridiculous as the sudden reveal of the Vampire Senate vampires being able to teleport. So... Less new powers as the plot demands, and more coherent world building, please. Worldbuilding is really what I like best about the show. But, when Yuki asks whether the boy found his mom, he disappears, obviously luring her out of her safe place. He takes off down the hall, and she follows him because she is an absolute dolt. Like, I get leaving the room. She definitely shouldn't just be hanging around in that room like Konami's obedient little dog. But she needs to be heading toward the goddamn door to get the fuck out of here and back to the academy where she belongs. And instead, she goes to spy on Zero at the party. Speaking of whom, he gets a sense of Shizuka's presence, which turns out to be Ichiru lurking about, wearing her bell as a hair ribbon. And then in walks Kaname. Everyone kneels in reverence, and aren't you guys supposed to have left monarchy behind because this is peasant shit? And then, they practically start sucking his dick over how awesome he is for defying the Senate to save some human, and I want to smack that smug little smirk right off his fucking face. But of course it gets worse. Ido's dad is there, as is his sister, and I feel so terrible for Ido in this scene, because his dad pretty much offers his sister up to Konami. It is horrifying on a misogyny level, of course. Treat your daughter with some goddamn respect, why don't you? and hilariously sad when one considers, you know, you realize your son is in love with him, right? This poor, stupid bastard. I don't just cannot catch a single break, because his crush gets swarmed now by people offering up their daughters to him because he apparently now understands that he's got some duty as a pureblood to, I guess, breed or something, and I am just increasingly sure that I want to see Konami dead by the end of this series. Maybe that's an unpopular opinion? But he is awful, both as a person and as what he represents for vampire society. Like, his mere presence turns people into these fawning, pathetic imbeciles, and it makes my skin crawl. Like, I get it. He's hot. But would you get up off your fucking knees? Then we're back to Ichiro, and Zero follows him from the party room as Ichio makes an ominous remark about doppelgangers being a death omen. They have a distinctly unfriendly chat that only lasts a moment. And then Ichiru reveals that he's working for the Senate now. And then we're back to Yuki. She's made it back to the room just in time to get scolded by Konami for leaving it, and he tells her that she'll have to do more than just apologize if she wants him to forgive her. I want to murder this man, you guys. Everything that I'm about to describe is done without so much as hinting at asking for consent. And so here we go. He hugs her, which turns into lifting her up so that he can carry her to the couch, lay her down, and loom menacingly over her. Then, he lays down on top of her, telling her that he's tired, and so he's going to use her tits as a fucking pillow until he decides that he forgives her. And because she is a 15-year-old girl with no mother figure to teach her right from wrong, she takes this as a romantic moment. And when she starts to cry, he leans over her, licks her neck, she's 15! and asks if she wants him to bite her. And, still crying, she consents. Except, hey, here's a fun fact. That consent that she gives there, that's not fucking consent. Here's a good rule of thumb, boys and girls, if you get a yes from your partner while your partner is visibly overwhelmed and actively crying, that is not a yes. There is a reason feminists talk about making sure that you're getting enthusiastic consent. There is nothing enthusiastic about Yuki here. She clearly does not actually want this, and yet she says yes because she fancies herself in love with Kaname, and she has no backbone, and she just desperately wants to give Zero and Kaname whatever they want in order to keep them happy, and I need someone to save this child. This is what happens when teen girls have to try to navigate being teen girls without the help of any properly supporting, nurturing adult women in their lives. Yuki is offering herself up for Konami to do literally anything with, and it makes me want to fucking cry myself. Konami is a predator, unambiguously, and I cannot fathom why anyone over the age of, like, 21 at absolute maximum would ever entertain the notion of him being a good love interest. If you are a teenager yourself experiencing this story, I get it. The younger you are, the more likely you are just as naive and childish as Yuki is herself. But as an adult woman? Jesus Christ, I hate this man. Especially after what he does next. He moves in to bite her, and pulls back at the last minute. Smiling like the abusive little bitch that he is, he tells her to learn a lesson from what just happened. Don't go walking into dangerous situations again, that's all. As if she was the one in the wrong here. I'm about to lose my fucking mind, you guys. Especially when, once Yuki gets back to the academy, she has this moment of holding Yori's hands that's so much nicer than any moment she's ever had with either Konami or Zero. Like, Yuki is just standing there with Yori and her adoptive dad and it's really sweet and she actually looks happy for once, and I am far from a het is you person. But all of this het in the series is genuinely ew, so please just give me Yori and Yuki instead of Yuki and either of these trash ass men! I'm dying over here. But. As our next episode opens, we find that it's vacation. Whether this is a summer break or something shorter, I'm not sure. Either way, the vampires are heading out, all except Ido, who is contemplating a marble while he reflects on Konami's murder of Shizuka. This is his episode, really. And while I am on the one hand thrilled that he gets his own episode... I don't know that I can really reconcile the flashbacks that we see in this episode with the way that Ido was presented before he became delusioned with Kaname. Maybe I will change my mind on that as I move into the rest of this season, but right now, it feels a bit contradictory. A bit like a retcon. But anyway... Yuki lurks about, spying on Konami while her pea brain struggles to reconcile her growing sense of fear with her fluttery teen romance anxiety over Konami, talking about turning her into a vampire. All I can really do at this point is to repeat that someone needs to save this very naive little girl from that extremely manipulative grown man, and I just... Yuki's whole sad-girl-victim-who's-too-young-to-realize-she's-being-victimized thing is making me a sad girl at this point. It's bumming me the fuck out. I would've enjoyed this show so much more if her relationships with both Kaname and Zero could've just been friendly or sisterly instead of romantic. This so-called romance hurts my heart. But then there's Ido. He's breaking into the boy's sun dorm to see Zero, and Zero threatens to tie him up, and Aido is just a complete goofball who makes Zero and Yuki chase him down, and... Aido is the best boy. Sorry, not sorry. Aido is everything that Kaname fucking wishes he was. So, anyway. Aido is, quote, running away, by which he mostly seems to mean that he intends to hang around with Zero and Yuki instead of going out and attending to whatever vampire obligations he has, or whatever... Zero cooks the three of them dinner, and Ido eats everything, calling into question the relationship between vampires, human cooking, and blood drinking in this universe. Again, less romance, more world building, please. Anyway, I love that Zero cooks, and I love that he's not being a bitch about it, but then we're back to Ido. Yuki gives him Zero's blood pills, which somehow pulls them into a conversation about what the hell is up with Kaname and his interest in both Yuki and Zero. He doesn't understand why he cares about Yuki, and he can't imagine why Kaname would defy the Senate for Zero of all people. And he takes it really seriously. When Yuki tries to downplay it, remarking that Kaname doesn't treat her specially, he threatens her. Aido's jealousy is simply off the fucking charts, even though he started to realize that Kaname is a shifty bastard. And, when Yuki insists that they have a, quote, simple, not special, relationship, she drops a heartbreaking and infuriating line. It's okay if he betrays me. Because Yuki has internalized that she's not worth anything, that it's fine for people to treat her however the hell they like, and that her only use in life is to make the men around her happy. So, let me ask you, what the fuck kind of father has cross been all these years? Ido, thank the gods, does not share this sentiment. Konami hasn't even directly betrayed him. He's just holding him at a distance and acting shifty, and Ido already is at least halfway on board the Kaname sucks train. As evidenced by what Kane is up to while all of this is going on, Iido tasked him with checking if there is anyone who could possibly have a grudge against the Curran family. He didn't tell Kane precisely what's going on here just that he has a bad feeling about things, but it's clear to the audience what's actually happening. He has very complicated feelings about Konami in general, has had complicated feelings about him all his life it seems, and now he wants to know just where Konami falls on the scale of villainy. Strangely, and for little reason that I can see so far, we now follow Shiki, He heads home to see his mother, who is kind of in shambles. She is disturbingly touchy-feely with her son, and not really taking care of herself, and she remarks that Shiki is looking more and more like, quote, that brute as he grows up. The implication is very dark, especially when Shiki says that he doesn't even know what his father looks like. I would say that it's pretty clear that Shiki was conceived via rape, and his mother's relationship with him is very implicitly incestuous. But back to Ido, It's flashback time, and we find him a childish little princeling who doesn't take kindly to the sudden appearance of Konami in his life, especially when he finds out that he's supposed to be submissive and reverent toward him. As a side note, I'll say here that we do catch a glimpse of Yuki and Konami's mom, and she does look quite a bit like the woman Yuki had a vision of, so make of that what you will. Now I think it's funny that Ido's tutor drops a world-building detail that doesn't actually make much sense here. It's a very flimsy building block for the story to rest upon. Supposedly, vampires just kind of, you know, appeared way back during some time period when humanity was on the brink of falling apart. To which I say, huh? Where'd they come from? A magic spell? A mutation? Did they crawl out of hell or arrive on a spaceship? You can't just say they appeared. That's nothing. That's meaningless. Give me real information. But... We do find out why the fuck Kaname is so super-duper special here. Sort of. Once upon a yesteryear before the Senate came about, the Karan family was the royal family of purebloods, and if the monarchy hadn't been abolished, then Kaname would be king of the vampires right now. Though the show treats him like he is anyway, so I hardly see how it makes much of a difference that he doesn't technically have the title as well. Ido's tutor, though, leaves us with an ominous tidbit. It would be trivial, she says, for someone descendant of that last Karan King to bite up a quick army of formerly human vampires and regain the old crown. Which feels like a big hint to the audience, doesn't it? It might be as simple as foreshadowing an ending with Yuki being like vampire queen or something like that, but I'd say it's much more likely for this to be a hint toward the identity of our big bad. If we really are going to wind up with an even more villainous than Kaname character as the big bad, it's almost certainly going to be someone that he and Yuki are related to. For my money, I'm willing to bet evil uncle. It's always an evil uncle. If there is a villainous character in a fantasy or adventure story, especially one involving royalty, then there almost always is either an evil brother or an evil uncle, Which is technically the same thing, I suppose, if you really think about it. Your evil uncle is just your parents' evil brother. And since we've already done an evil twin brother in Zero's family, I would wager that if the current family tree has another bad seed besides Kaname, it's gonna be Yuki's uncle. Especially given her parents' supposed suicides. That almost certainly weren't suicides. Either Kaname did something to them, or an evil uncle did. I would bet money. But back to Ido, We're still in the midst of flashbacks with Kaname trying and mostly failing to befriend him. Ido cannot stand him at this point in his life, which is fun and complicated. Does he really not like him personally, or is he just jealous? Or does he not want to like Kaname the way that he does? So, a couple years later, Kaname and Ido meet up again after Kaname's parents have died. Despite years of insisting that he doesn't like Kaname, Ido is carrying this little marble as a reminder of him, and it's very obvious at this point that he's got a crush. Like I said, I think there's more than enough room here to interpret this as a little bit of internalized homophobia on the part of baby Ido. Look at that blush when he first met Kaname. I think it's safe to say that he hated him from the jump both because he didn't like having some kid around that he had to pay deference to. Plus, he was also a really little boy struggling with suddenly having a crush on another boy, and that's if he even realized it was a crush at that time, or whether he just knew that Kaname made him somehow uncomfortable. Whatever the intended interpretation is, though, it's far deeper and more complex and nuanced than anything happening with Yuki, and so I repeat once more, Ido is the best boy, and Kaname is the worst. Ido, trying to be supportive toward this other little boy who just lost his damn parents, asks if there's anything else going on with Kaname because he seems different than before, and Kaname leans in close and threatens to kill him. And while Kaname in the earlier flashbacks was a perfect sweetheart, this is the Kaname that I recognize. Which leads me to another theory. Just as Shizuka was possessing Maria, is there any chance that the Kaname we know and love, in quotes, is actually someone else? Maybe that evil uncle I have dreamed up is possessing him. For the first time since the last season of Dark crushed my soul, I think I'm moving fully back into tinfoil territory, aren't I? Anyway, poor dumb Ido tries to tell Kaname that he's his friend, and he more or less admits his feelings. Quote, I like you but I hated myself for being unable to admit it. That is definitely textual support for my interpretation, as is his repeating I like you with a blood-red blush as Kaname walks away. But back to the present. Ido repeats that Kaname changed when his parents died, and he says, quote, the nobles seemed to be afraid of something. I look forward to finding out what the answer is here, and I really hope that Ido gets to be a big part of ferreting out the truth. And, in the kitchen, Yuki is once again trying to feed Zero her blood. He's reluctant, but, well, hungry, and so he drinks from her wrist or hand or something, and in the hall, Ido spies on the two of them before storming away in another huff. He apparently cannot stop himself from thinking about Zero, despite the fact that, quote, I should be worrying about Konami. Which brings me to my ships. I've already mentioned my supporting ships, but I will bring them up once again. First, we have Yagari and Cross all the way. I don't particularly like either one of those two men, but they would have a great relationship dynamic. Second, Yuki and Yori. Yuki is far too damaged, childish, and naïve to be in a relationship with either one of these boys, especially given how much older they're coded than she is. Yori, meanwhile, is far and away the most supportive person in Yuki's life. With Yori, Yuki might actually be able to grow a spine and learn to love and respect herself. Yuki deserves a relationship with Yori vastly more than she deserves to suffer a relationship with either Zero or, gods forbid, Kaname. Now, as for Zero and Konami themselves, in my previous episode, I had kind of jokingly said that they're both trash, but they have an interesting dynamic, and so they might as well just have each other. Now I take that back. What I want here is very simple. I want only a small shift in the show's overall relationship dynamics here's what I want. Yuki is no longer the main character. Sorry, not sorry, she doesn't have enough personality to carry this narrative. Instead, Zero becomes our main character, and Aido is our deuteragonist. Kaname can still have his predatory romance with Yuki if it's absolutely necessary. But for Zero, she's just a little sister character, which will have the pleasant side effect of making their relationship much healthier. And Aido, well, Aido is in love with Kaname, of course. At first. As he unravels the mystery of what the fuck Kaname is up to, though, he gets disillusioned with Kaname and grows out of his crush. And Zero, who has considerable sexual tension with Kaname, but actually can't stand the fucking guy, helps Ido get to the bottom of the mystery, potentially to protect his sister if the Yuki and Kaname relationship persists. And so Aido falls out of love with Kaname, and into love with Zero. That's it. That's the ship. You are welcome. From there, Kaname is obsessed with Yuki, but he ends up dying or something, and so she ends up with Yori. Yigari gets together with Cross, and Ido and Zero get together while they protect Yuki and take down Kaname. You're welcome, once again, because I just fixed this show. But... In the show proper, Aido is convincing himself that he loves Konami the way Yuki does. He wants her, quote, it's okay if he betrays me, line, to be how he feels, despite the fact that it's clearly not. And before our episode ends, Zero finally gets to show off some degree of emotional intelligence. He accuses Yuki of being, quote, unstable, and notes that she's always pretending to be happy around him. Unsurprisingly, Yuki's facade breaks immediately but her dialogue reveals that she has no actual understanding of why she's depressed. She calls herself spoiled for having mental health issues, even though she's got a support system of four damn people, consisting of one friend who actually supports her, a foster brother-slash-boyfriend who has to struggle not to eat her, a dad who pays virtually no attention to her, and a crush-slash-secret-brother manipulating and just shy of molesting her. She speculates about whether becoming a vampire might help fix her. And no, honey, that's not how mental health works. And it makes Zero lose his goddamn mind. He, quote, won't let her become a vampire, even if it pits him against essentially the king of them all and makes her hate him. And you know what? I take back everything nice I've ever said about him. Throw this boy in the bin. Jesus Christ. So, I suppose I could talk more, I suppose I could reiterate what it is that I want out of the show, what I consider to be the shortcomings of the show, but instead, I think I will take a minute to just talk about the things that I am still enjoying. First of all, it's a very pretty show, in a very mid-2000s quasi-goth kind of way, and I'm still very charmed by just, like, the awareness of how much I would have loved this as a child. I'm also really enjoying Ido as a supporting character, Mostly, though, what I'm enjoying is the potential of the show. I feel like all the building blocks of something phenomenal are here, and they're, like, just not quite configured correctly to be something truly good? I think at this point it's fair to say that while I am enjoying this experience, I feel like I'm starting to reach a point of being a little bit tired with this show and its narrative. I'm especially tired of the Yuki and Zero relationship, and I really wish the show could try to focus on this Aido vs Konami idea. In my ideal world, Aido is going to be the driving force of this narrative because at this point I am entirely sick of Yuki and her relationship problems, and of watching her mental health fall apart. The only thing I want to see her doing while she's on screen from now on is sitting in a therapist's office getting help for her whole host of problems. And I know there's absolutely zero chance that that is going to happen. Nothing like that would ever happen in this show. Nothing like that ever happens in a supernatural show. And so what is happening here for me is that the novelty of this mid-2000s nostalgia piece is starting to wear off really quickly. I've been coasting on the, you know, that was a crazy time, right, of it all. And now I'm starting to move into... Wait, no, that era actually really blew territory. And that means I'm moving past being charmed by this show and into being... frustrated, to say the very least? Now, at the moment, I am three episodes into this new season, which means that there are ten to go before I am all done. And I'm definitely way too early in this to predict where this season is going to go with anything resembling accuracy, but I assume that we're definitely going to be doing a bigger bad behind Shizuka kind of thing. I sincerely hope the show isn't planning to do anything with the idea of Konami actually being, like, a stand-up guy, and that all the bullshit we've seen out of him so far was actually just to fight this really bad guy or gal that we haven't met yet. To once again bring up Harry Potter because I am nothing if not a millennial, there's this thing of fans arguing that Dumbledore, who was the franchise's mastermind character, is actually a really great guy to be considered unambiguously good. And like… no? If you're playing the chess master role and you're out here sacrificing lives via murder or tricking people into sacrificing themselves, then you're not good. You can be grey, sure. I love a grey character, You can even be working for the greater good, and aligned with good, and all of that. But the Chessmaster character who thinks of people as pawns to potentially sacrifice is never a good guy. Period. The Chessmaster is a villain at worst, and an anti-hero at best. They're not a hero, even if they're the protagonist, and there's no way in hell that this show is ever going to be able to get me on board with the idea that Konami motherfucking Curran is anything approaching a heroic guy. He's absolutely nuts. Anyway, let me go ahead and wrap this up lest I trick myself into ranting about Konami for the rest of my natural life. Of course i'm going to be back next week with my coverage of the next three episodes of this show and if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast i hope you will be back next week to join me for that one as well if you did enjoy this episode i would appreciate if you could consider leaving a rating or a review for the podcast on your podcatcher of choice alternately feel free to check out the patreon where i currently have one dollar five dollar and ten dollar patreon tiers offering various rewards including polls for future shows and access to full-length reaction videos Beyond that, if there are any other Patreon perks that you would be interested in seeing from me, feel free to let me know. And with all of that said, that's me done for now. As always, thank you so much for listening.